All right, welcome to the Real Freedom Podcast with your host, Ryan Weimer. Today I have Corby Goad with me, Corby's absolute killer realtor in the Boise, Idaho area, Treasure Valley. Corby and I met up on Bigger Pockets years ago, and, and Corby really helped me get started on my journey to financial freedom. So I thought we'd bring it right back to the source of how my journey in real estate started and talk with Corby about his experience and what he can share with the audience about, gosh, if you're not even, if you haven't even taken one step on your path to financial freedom, how to get started and how to overcome some of those objections that get in the way. So Corby, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm really excited about this. I mean, we work together all the time, but jumping on this podcast and, and getting to kind of reminisce and talk a little bit about kind of both of our trajectories, it'll, it'll be fun. I've been excited. Awesome. kick things off on this podcast, we always talk about a fun uh, subject of what is your most beautiful failure? My most beautiful failure. That is a good question. I would probably take it back to the very first deal that I did. And it, it actually was a really interesting lesson for me. The short version of the story is, is I had this property that I bought and I kind of did a house hack before there was that was a term, but I bought the house and was kind of fixing it up. And I had one of my buddies, one of my college roommates moved in with me and he was handier than I was. And so we worked on the house for about a year, just on the weekends. We'd you know paint here, do some flooring there, landscaping. And when I moved out, I went to rent the property out and I just put it on Craigslist. I think at the time was basically the only option. So I put the property on Craigslist. I had no idea about screening. I didn't have any idea about property management. I had like a friend who his parents had a rental and he gave me a blank lease. I, I didn't know the laws, nothing like that. So first person comes and walks through and I was like, oh, she's nice. She can have it. So I, that was it. That was the extent of my screening. And she was on section eight. And so everything I'd read was like section eight is great because you automatically get paid rent. And that was true. Um, you know, the, the rent checks were coming, but I wasn't really paying attention to the property and cause the rent checks were just coming and she lived there for, uh, I think four years. And the first three years, like I, I would drive by once every three or four months and everything looked fine. I'd check in with her every few months and, and never had many problems. Well, that fourth year, things started getting a little bit rocky and um, she stopped returning phone calls. And as some people might know, with Section 8, they'll pay um, a certain amount and then anything over and above, that person has to pay out of pocket. And so her portion was like 80 bucks a month for a while. And that stopped coming in. And lo and behold, I found out that she had been in prison for like three months. And that's why I couldn't get a hold of her. And I, I wasn't getting paid. That'll do and it. So, yeah, that makes it tough. <laughs> so, uh, so I went over to the house and changed the locks. And I didn't realize that one of her ex-boyfriends, who happened to be her dealer also, was living in the house on her behalf while she was in prison. And so I changed the locks, went back the next day to clean some stuff up, and he kicked the door in. So the door frame was broken. I mean, and there were like, he obviously was angry with me for having changed the locks. He went in and like punched some holes in the walls, put cigarette burns in the carpet, some of that kind of stuff. And so I, I went back, I fixed the door, changed the locks again. He did the same thing again the next day. And so this went back and forth for a few times before the guy stopped showing up. But in the meantime, I mean, I don't know how many thousands of dollars in damage that he did to my property. And so that, I mean, that was tough for me, especially being my first deal. I mean, I... I was broke. I wasn't making much money at my W-2. And this was kind of going to be the beginning of my nest egg. And my wife and I went over like for a few weekends and her parents came and helped us kind of clean the place up. But it would probably, if we would have hired somebody, it would have been a $20,000 job. And there's no way that I was coming up with 20,000 bucks. And so that was a pretty harsh lesson for me that like, this was not something to just jump into and kind of guess how things were going to go along the way. Like you need a support system and educate yourself for sure. Wow. That is... That is quite the first uh, property story. Lots of lots of things to unpack there. But fast forwarding now, how many how many rental doors do you have? And you know, you're you're even more of an active investor than you are an agent. How many doors do you have now? Yeah, I, I, honestly, I'm I'm no Ryan Weimer. Um, my wife and I think we have 13 doors right now. So not a ton, but we've had a lot of them for a while, and we've done uh, a lot of burrs. And so we have a lot of equity built into those. And and most of the properties that we have, with the exception of the last couple that we bought, cash flow really well. Okay. And they're all in the Boise area? Yep. Everything we own is in the Treasure Valley. Okay. 
So going back to this first story, it's it's actually I didn't know to the extent of <laughs> that that happened. We we've talked about that story before, but never in that detail. What most people when they have a first deal like that, they're like, I'm never touching real estate ever again. Like probably ninety plus percent, right? They and I see this this mistake commonly where. They try to property property management is the big piece that everybody goes wrong. They try to do it themselves and they have a bad tenant situation. And then all of a sudden they throw their hands up in the air and they're like, nope, real estate doesn't work. I'm not doing real estate. So how in the world with a first experience like that, did you actually want to continue at all? Well, it probably goes to show you uh, how, how hard headed I am, I guess. That basically the short version of the story is I paid $105,000 for this house. I think it was 2001. I bought it in 2001, paid $105,000 and through cleaning it up and doing some of the work that me and my buddy had done. When I went to rent it out, I, I got a HELOC on it and I had an appraisal and it appraised for like $130,000. So that was $25,000. At the time I was teaching high school here and I was, my salary, I think was $23,000. And so it kind of clicked for me that, that just doing some stuff in my spare time on the weekends and having fun with my buddy, really, I'd made more money in equity than I made grinding at my day job. And, you know, fast forward to the house being destroyed and all that kind of stuff. By the time that happened, we had a tent there for a few years. The house was probably worth, at that point, maybe one hundred and forty dollars or $150,000. So I had a decent chunk of equity for, especially for somebody that was, you know, working for 23000 bucks a year, 24000 bucks a year. And I know I've told you this story before, but my wife, who's really like the brains behind everything that we do, she pulled me aside and she was like, you did everything wrong. Like you are the worst property manager and worst real estate investor imaginable. And she was like, somehow you still made money. And she, so she wasn't into this at all. And she, I mean, obviously having this experience that this wasn't, she, she, she didn't, she didn't see that we had to go work on this house that was destroyed by somebody else and, and think like, wow, I want to do more of this. But she was looking at the numbers and she she brought it up that like I, I did everything wrong and somehow we still had equity in this property. And and so she just said, like, if we put our heads together and like I build some processes around what you're doing and, and kind of keep you in line and you go out and do some of the grunt work and find the deals, like we might have something here. And so ironically, that first deal going so bad and still not losing our shorts was really great motivation for us because we realized that like having done as poorly in every possible way as we had and still not losing money, that there was something there that, that if we could figure out how to make things work, that, that we could do significantly better. Yeah. And I, I think to hit a lot of good learnings to unpack there, especially dealing with jumping into something new with a spouse, a lot of times, you know, I hear that, hey, Either I'm all into this and my wife isn't really sold on it, or my wife's all into this and I'm not really sold on it. And I'm curious how that's probably that probably wasn't, I guess, a really nice conversation at first, right? I'm sure it caused a, a lot of stress and anxiety in your relationship. How were you guys able to communicate? Now I know that it ha it had the results attached to it, right? So maybe that made it easier for her to see like the why behind your what how you're doing it, but. For those people out there that don't really have an aligned vision with their spouse, um, what, what's some advice that we could give them? Yeah, that, that's a tough one. I hear that a lot. I'm sure you hear it a lot, too, that there, uh, more often than not, it's the husband who's really into it and the wife is, is not. And that was my situation for sure. My wife, Heather, was not into it at all. And so when I had bought this house originally, she lived in a different house and we had just gotten engaged. And so we, we started looking for our own house together. We found a house and started moving our stuff into this house and she put her house on the market and she was like, Hey, when are you putting your house on the market? And I'd been doing a little bit of reading on my own and kind of studying up on how some of this stuff worked. And I said, I think I'm just going to keep that one as a rental. And she was like, I think that's a terrible idea. And so we talked actually quite a bit about it and we came up with an agreement. She, I'm, I'm telling you, she was not into it at all. She thought it was a terrible idea. Definitely. And not to say that I was far in front of her, but I mean, she definitely had the the poor dad from the rich dad, poor dad mindset, the W2 mindset. You work for 45 years. Hopefully you save up some retirement and, and have a couple good years left in you. And so I bugged her for a long time to, re to read rich dad, poor dad. And, and this several years later, she read it. She was like, oh, yeah, this is this is where you're coming from. Anyway, to, to back up and answer your question directly, we came up with an agreement that all of the investment that I would be doing on real estate the mortgages would be in my name. The deed would be my name. None of it would have her name on it. It was totally separate. 
And we kind of had a handshake agreement that she said that she didn't want the rentals to take any of our family time or any of our personal time away, which of course, like that didn't happen. Like I failed completely <laughs> at that, but she was really patient with me. Um, but that, that was initially our agreement in order to kind of start moving forward was that any investments that I wanted to do, she wanted her personal name and her credit and finances completely separated from it. And we, you know, as a couple, we had combined our bank accounts and that sort of thing. But the first couple of deals that, that we went out to do, I just did those in my personal name. And it, I wasn't doing it behind her back. You know, she was looking at everything with me, but she wanted to kind of step back and see how things would go and not not kind of drag her credit or finances through the mud until she she found that there there was a, a method to the madness. And so the first few deals we did went that way. They were they were all on me financially and personally. And she was kind of in the background, keeping an eye on things and and encouraging me, but not not putting herself financially out there. Okay. Do you think uh, getting started, if that uh, tenant experience had happened maybe in the first three or four months and you didn't have a ton of equity and, you know, do you think that would have changed things or would you have still pushed through and why? That's a great question. I never thought about that. Um, I think it's possible that 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 probably would have been an end to my investing career, partially just because we had had kind of that handshake agreement that we were going to keep that was going to be my problem. And if that would have blown up immediately, I would have been scared. And I know that that would have been kind of the nail in the coffin for her to say, like, I, I was right and, and we shouldn't be doing this. So, yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, it's man, it's a bummer when you see people that because on one end of the spectrum, right, analysis paralysis is is a massive killer, mm-hmm. right? But on on the other side of it, if you just take blind action in investing and, and kind of whether it's you're being naive and you don't know any better or it's just you're speculating, uh, having an event that can happen like that can completely alter like your financial future forever. And it, it might just be happenstance. So I, I think it's interesting that, that I'm glad that it worked out that way and not, not the opposite, but I see a lot of people that do, um, especially with the tenant stuff, like I said before, that um, they're not so lucky in their first uh, few months. And then all of a sudden they have a big problem and they never want to do it again. And it's a, it's a big bummer. Uh, but, yeah. it, you know, it, it's kind of like trading options in stocks, right? If you don't, it's, it can be high risk if you don't know what you're doing and you have a short enough time horizon. And so, I don't know, any, any thoughts on how people that are just scared on the sidelines should evaluate risk? Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important to align yourself with somebody who's doing what you want to do. And they're one or two steps ahead of where you are. I think that that gives people a lot of confidence. And not only that, but as you know, like we don't do this in a vacuum. Uh, a lot of the deals that I've been able to do are are because I know other people who can kind of fill in the blanks where my knowledge and, and my efforts are not as strong. There's plenty of times where I've been working on a deal for a client that, I mean, I've done, I shouldn't say I, but the the team that I work with, we we do 80 transactions a year and they're most all investment deals. But there's several times a year where I'll call you because there's some situation where I'm like, I have never been in this situation before and, and I'm not exactly sure how to handle it. And having those relationships and people that you can call are huge. So I would say like if somebody's on the sideline, they're feeling analysis paralysis, the best thing you can do is, is, go on to a local investment group on Facebook or on Reddit and just start inviting people out to coffee or lunch and pick their brains. I mean, people love helping others and pulling them up and sharing. And I don't know anybody in this market who wouldn't happily meet somebody who is eager to learn and and share whatever they know with them and, and offer them resources. But it can be kind of an intimidating thing. But once you do that once or twice, it's no big deal. And people will root for you and they'll help you. Yeah, 100%. I, a, quick, a quick tip there too. I had a lot of younger people getting started reach out to me to be on their podcast in the early days. And people love talking about themselves. So a podcast is a perfect way to basically have an informal coffee or lunch or something with somebody and, and ask questions that you want to ask selfishly, but also for the benefit benefit of their branding and their audience. So it's a win-win for sure. So going, going uh, full circle now, how did you... How did you get your wife, Heather, on board? Like, what was that moment where she, your guys' vision became aligned? Because I know now, obviously, you have you have three boys that are uh, growing up and you guys travel a lot, or mm-hmm. at least relative to the normal population, right? And, and this idea of financial freedom and all the benefits that come with that happen later. 
but not right away. So I'm curious, what, what was that turning point for Heather to get on board? Yeah, I mean, there there was a lot of little things that happened, but essentially with, with her being a teacher, after the first couple of years, I moved on from being a teacher and, and got a different job, but she had summers off. And so um, when the market kind of dipped in 2007, 2008, there was a lot of cheaper properties on the market here. And so what we did for a couple summers is we would just scrape together whatever pennies we had and, and open up a HELOC and we'd use that as a down payment for some fixer upper. And so for a couple summers, we didn't have kids. We would just spend every day, all day long working on a house and, and basically do a burr on it. And so we build up a, a bunch of equity, we'd refinance it, and then we put a tenant in it. And, and this was before there was a bigger pockets or even the term burr. We were just kind of, we're doing it because it made sense to us. So we did that a couple times. And then we got to the point where our income didn't support us getting any more conventional loans. And at the time, I didn't really know much about creative financing. And so we kind of just hung in there for a couple of years until the market started coming back in, in Boise around like 2012, things started to recover here and things, things were on the up. And so um, when 2012 hit, there there was kind of this balance where we had a decent amount of equity, but properties were still pretty cheap and there wasn't much competition. And so we started refinancing our properties and pulling equity out and going and buying more properties. So we did that a couple of times and, and just sat on them. I mean, I think kind of what you're alluding to and, and the reality it is, is we didn't do anything special. We're certainly not highly intelligent people. We didn't have a lot of money to start with. It's really just a matter of us taking reasonable risks and waiting. That was it. Yeah. Um, and so the turning point for us really, uh, it took about 12 years of us doing a deal here and a deal there. Uh, we probably averaged some transaction during that time, like every 18 months, something like that. But we just kept everything and we rented it out. And the short version of the story is uh, we had our first kid. And I think I've told you this story before, but we had our first son and he had a heart defect. So we didn't know this. We weren't expecting it, but he was born. He had a heart problem. And so she took a leave of absence from work. And we were brand new parents. And, and a lot of parents think like I'm having a baby and now I'm going to be a 24-7 parent and life's going to be crazy. And we thought that same thing too. But when you have a kid, a brand new baby sleeps for 18 hours a day. <laughs> and and Heather's not the type of person who's going to sit around and take naps all day long. And so after a, about a week of this, she was like, I got to do something. And so she she said, I it was really her idea. She said, I'm going to start a property management company just to manage our properties. And at the time, I think we had six or seven properties. But we'd had issues. We were still self-managing and, and had made many, many improvements since that first time. But we still were kind of figuring things out. But she had this idea to start the property management company just as a way to create a barrier between us and the tenants. We could present ourselves as the owners of this property management company rather than the owners of the properties themselves. And that that changed everything for us. And as a side note, we can dive into this further if you want, but anybody who's got a few doors and they're self-managing, the, the number one tip I can give you, especially if you're in a state where property management is not regulated, if you start a property management company and create that barrier between you and your tenants, like it, it's a whole new world. So anyway, when she started the property management company, it, it kind of lit a fire under her to learn more about that process. She got more into the finance finances of it. And it really just got her excited. And that was kind of the turning point really for her and for us that she found this other thing that she was really good at. And it was in the same world of real estate investing. And because we were doing more of that, we started having more friends coming to us and saying like, Hey, how, how, how do you guys do this? And, and my uncle has a property that he's been looking for a property manager. Would you talk to them? And it was just kind of networking and making those connections and things just organically started building from there. So a few things really stick out to me about about this journey. Number one is what you mentioned is time. It's playing the long game. And I think that's that's one of the things in real estate, especially where the effects and your gains just multiply by waiting. And if you're looking to get rich quick, I see a lot of see a lot of flippers that that have that mindset where they like they're treating it as as getting a quick buck and it's real estate is really not designed to be your quick buck engine it's it's used to build generational wealth over time because of all the all the things that it offers right you got tax depreciation benefits you got loan pay down you got leverage you've got the hedge against it in inflation and you can get cash flow so all of those things um there's not another asset class like it and what I love about your story is that it was just really taking the long view 
of everything. So I don't really know where I was going with that other than I think <laughs> I think there's a lot of people out there that are that are looking for that quick answer to things. And you didn't at all. From when in that journey were you able to quit your job and Heather was able to quit being a teacher and, and do this full time? Yeah. So just to kind of jump back a little bit and work up to the answer to that question, that first house that I bought and I, I told you I kept as a rental. Initially, the goal was just like, we'll just keep this house and then 25 years from now, it'll be paid off and that, you know, we'll have a little bit extra income. That was really the extent of what we thought. And we learned a little bit about how we could use a HELOC to uh, to use that for down payment on a new property and working as teachers, you know, making next to nothing. There was no chance we were going to save up another forty dollars or $50,000. We were able to fix up these properties and build a little equity. And then we found out we could borrow against them to buy other properties. So we started doing that as our equity built up. We did that more and more. And as as we waited, you know, rents went up and our payments stayed the same and our cash flow became more and more. With Heather kind of running things in the background, what had happened was she she was on that extended leave of absence because our son had this heart issue. And um, during that leave of absence, she started the property management company solely with the intent just to manage our own properties. A, a lot of people don't know this, but in property or in, in Idaho, property management is completely unregulated. In a lot of states, you have to have licenses, um, you have to have certifications. And in Idaho, that's not the case at all. And so there's a lot of bad property managers out there. And so we started getting calls just from random investors on occasion saying, hey, I have a house here. I have two houses there and I'm looking for a new property manager. So she took a few of those on and lo and behold, she during this leave of absence, she kind of extended and extended it. And we were really fortunate that the school district she was working for, they ended up letting her take all of her sick leave that she had gained over 13 years for that entire year. So she got sick pay for the entire year to stay home with our son. And the whole time she was building up this property management business. And she built it up to the point where she was making more for the property management business just on her own than she made it as a teacher. And so when the next year rolled around, she loved teaching, but she wanted to be home with her kids. And so yeah. she she just said, thanks, but I'm going to keep doing this. Uh, and I stayed at my day job for the next couple of years. But um, that freedom that she had started exposing us to other investors and other opportunities. And so we did a couple more deals along the way. And it, it's kind of funny. I think I've told you this story before, but... I'd had a particularly crappy day at my job um, and I came home and was kind of complaining to her a little bit and she gave me a couple hard truths, but they were, they were kind of encouraging hard truths. Yeah. One of the things she said to me, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll never forget it. She said, you are the worst employee in the world. And I remember being kind of taken aback and I, and what does that mean? And she said, you, you just can't keep your mouth shut. Like you can't work for somebody else. You because you have too many opinions and you you just you want to do things your way. You have to work for yourself. And then she was she was like, "But good news, like I think we're making enough money that you can quit your job and and do real estate full time." And I kind of chuckled because we hadn't even been having conversations about it. And that's kind of the beauty of of buy and hold to me. The long term buy and hold is that it sneaks up on you. It's not like we had a number that we were waiting to 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 hit, and we you know every month we were sitting down and seeing how close we were. It wasn't like that at all. Um, it was just kind of one day that she was like, yeah, I was looking and, and I think that we'll probably be okay. Like all of our basic expenses are covered and there's some opportunity here and, and let's give it a shot. And so I went in the next day and quit my job. I, was, I literally like didn't even think about it for 24 hours. I went in the next day and quit my job after we had that conversation and, and the rest is history, really. <laughs> not impulsive at all. But I think I think what's <laughs> funny is it, it's really not because you waited long enough to where your income gave you that that financial foundation where you could, we, we call that having FU money, right? Yeah. Where you can go to your boss and you can just say, F off, I'm, I'm quitting, you know, I'm doing what I want with my life. And I think that's what's so addicting to real estate in general is it's just the most proven path to financial freedom. And for, for people that weren't around like in 07, 08, 09, what, what happened in Boise and how did you guys weather that storm? I, I think at the time, what, you only had a, maybe a couple rental properties? We had three single families at the time. Since we were we had done the Burr method, we, we weren't leveraged super heavily. And a, a lot of newer investors don't know this, but at the time, one of the reasons we were able to buy a couple more properties not making very much money, and, and, and this is kind of a good for us, but like bad for the industry. At the time, all conventional lenders were doing what they called them piggyback loans. And essentially what they would do is you could buy an investment property and they still conventional lenders at the time still required 25% down for conventional loan on investment. But what they would do 
is they would give you a second loan for the 25% down payment at the same time. So you borrowed 100% of the value of the property, um, even yeah. though, you know, on paper, it looked like you did this 25% down payment. You're just paying two loans. And so we did that a couple of times to, to get into things, but then we fixed them up and, and built up that equity. And so values for properties in Boise did go down at the time. I mean, I think on average, I'd have to go back and look, but I want to say, you know, values came down 30 or 40%, something in that range during that time, a lot. But rents didn't really come down. I mean, I think rents might have come down 10% or something like that. And so I don't know what what gave us the the gall to do it, but all of our, you know, all of our friends were saying like, oh, you got to dump those properties. Like we were underwater on everything. Even though we built up equity originally, everything we owned was worth less than what we owed on it. But our bills were being paid by the renters. We, you know, we weren't cash flowing a lot, maybe a hundred bucks for each one of those doors, but we weren't paying the bills. The renters were paying the bills. And so we just, we just kind of talked about it and said, well, we're just, we'll just keep renters in there and we'll do our best to take good care of them. And it'll come back eventually. I mean, we didn't have any experience, but I mean, that's what people say is that real estate always comes back or the market always comes back. So we just said, we'll just keep our heads down and wait. And it, it did. Yeah. I'm curious how you applied that experience to kind of this latest pullback here in the last year and a half, because a lot of people just, they want to bail the minute things get hard or the minute that there's uncertainty instead of viewing it as an opportunity. And just like now, I want to hear your forecast for next year and, and moving onwards, just with all your experience and everything you do in Boise, how have you applied that, what you learned during the last crash um, to this pullback here in the last year and a half? And what do you project moving forward for Boise? Well, my, my experience back then, honestly, it just makes me more bold now about real estate. And the fact that rates are high and, and it's hard to cash flow properties right now, to, to me, cash flow is not king. You hear people say cash flow is king or cash is king all the time. and to me, that is not at all the case because the reason I am where I am is because of equity. So to me, I know the cash flow is going to come eventually. It might not come for five years or 10 years. And I'm not saying that people should go out and buy cash flow negative properties, especially if it's going to affect your lifestyle. But that's not the end all be all. If you build up equity, and that's truly what will change people's lives is that equity. You can do a lot when you have equity. I, I like to tell a lot of the, the newer investors that come to me that, that are really worried about cash flow is... Cash flow is great because it can buy you lunch, but equity will pay for your kid's college. Like it's a whole different ballgame. I mean, people flip houses because of equity. Nobody's flipping houses for cash flow. It's because you can make a lot of money really quick. And that's, it's funny because a lot of people will say that cash flow is the most important thing and they're out flipping houses. And flipping houses is based exclusively on building equity. That's all, all it is. Right. So um, anyhow, to me, I, I was in it for the long haul. And so I'm a big believer that like if you buy a quality property, and take good care of it and just wait that you're going to be fine. I, I've seen that in my own life and in friends and clients' portfolios time and time and time again. And, and you've seen that many times too in, in the few years that you've been doing this. As far as as the forecast, I mean, obviously, interest rates right now are kind of putting a damper on things. But Boise is still a highly desirable place to live. It's high quality uh high quality of life here. A lot of our clients are in California and I get calls all the time from people who who say like, I don't want to buy in a war zone. So like, make sure that you're not showing me properties that are in war zones. And I, I kind of laugh like that about it because people don't believe how nice of an area this is. It really is. There's not a single area or neighborhood that I would think twice about going at, at night with my kids. Like, it's just a nice place to live. And there's not many places like that in America. And that brings a lot of people here. And the bottom line, when, when you're in business, it, it's, it's that scarcity thing. Like if you have an asset like Boise that's valuable, people are going to want it. And there's not many places like this. And so people are still moving here. Um, there's still plenty of building going on here. I mean, the market's going to ebb and flow. But in my opinion, I, I think our market is pretty much stabilized about over the last probably 10 months. I don't foresee any serious dips in valuations. I think it's probably going to be stabilized like this for a while. And as rates start coming down, especially with the low inventory, I hate to say it, I mean, for a lot of people getting in, but if rates do come down in any relatively significant way, it's going to be really tough out there. Yeah. Tough, tough for buyers. You mean like a, like yeah, a price for Yeah, for sure. I mean, with the limited inventory here, if we see rates coming back down sub six, 
people are going to come out of the woodwork and there's nothing for them to buy. And we're going to be right back in that situation where everything's getting, you know, multiple offers and selling for over asking price. You and I have talked about this concept a million times, but there's always a reason to be afraid. And it's always going to feel risky. If you're doing your first few deals, it's going to be scary. I don't care what the situation is. I always use the example that like, I could walk up to a client that's never bought a property before that's ready to go. They've read all the books, they've listened to all the podcasts, and I could I could give them the perfect deal on a platter and hand it to them. And they're going to want to see what their mom thinks. They're going to call their buddy. They're going to want to post on bigger pockets, and they're going to want to have everybody telling them that this is a great deal and it's going to work. And in the meantime, somebody like Ryan Weimer is going to buy it sight unseen in 20 minutes. So yeah, it's just a matter of taking that action. It, it's totally the, I'll wait for XYZ to happen. I'll wait for rates to come down. I'll wait for prices to come down. I'll wait for the next crash. I'll wait for things to become more affordable. It's like, you're going to be waiting forever because yeah. the people that can actually take advantage of those situations are the ones that have all the experience built up from doing things when things were hard. So, so looking forward into 2024, if you had to give a rough range of either price decline or price appreciation, what do you think? Oh, I, I think I think it's reasonable to think that a year from now we'll probably be up maybe two or three percent, not a ton. If you look at the last twenty years, the average in Boise has been about seven to eight percent appreciation, um, and so I think we're going to be far below the average. And, and honestly, we probably won't even hit inflation, but I think there that we'll see a minor recovery as rates come down in the next year or so. And honestly, like a stable a stable market is a great market to invest in anyway. I mean, I'm, I'm out looking anyway. I know that you're always looking and always buying properties. But when things are stable, for better or for worse, it, it gives you a little bit of time to really consider a deal rather than, than have to just, you know, jump in both feet first and, and not really think that much about it. it, it it's, it's a level playing field for everybody, I think. Well, and here's the thing, too, that I think gives you an incredible advantage over people is you've gone through the hard work to build a property management company, to be a high level investor agent, to have gone through the failures of managing your properties yourselves and doing all the work yourselves, and then and then being in the same area for a long time, doing a high volume of deals to know every street corner and everything that goes with it. You're not buying properties at market value, and neither am I. And so once you have that skill set, you can insider trade. You can legally insider trade, right? The day day one when you buy a property, you have a fairly high level or even a certain level of assurity that, hey, you bought a good deal. Mm -hmm. Day one, you've made money. And so I think that's that concept gets lost upon people. It's like, what's going to happen with prices and uh, the fear around all that? And it's like, guys, if, if I'm buying below market value every single time, you can't lose over time. That formula is undefeated. Yeah, that that experience and and knowledge is it's so vital. One of the things that that I, I I think about quite a bit is just because I was born here, I grew up here, I know every nook and cranny of this town and this valley. And you and I talk almost daily about comps and looking at properties and, and valuations and that sort of thing. And I, I kind of challenge myself sometimes, but a lot of times, if I get an address on a property that you're looking at, if I go to the tax records and look at the square footage, the size of the lot, and where it is. I can probably get within 8% of the valuation just by looking at those numbers and not even looking at a comp. And that's huge if you're going to invest is knowing the market that well. And I don't know any other markets as well. So I'm not, I'm not saying I'm a genius or savant or anything like that. It's just because it's just this is all that I do. But if, you, if you're able to be that confident in valuations just by looking at an address, then you can act a lot more quickly and with a lot more confidence. And so that market knowledge to me is like a huge advantage. And so for people who sit down and just comp properties over and over and really study their market, they're going to have an advantage over other people time and time again. It doesn't really matter how much cash you have or anything like that. That market knowledge will help you make decisions faster. And that speed is vital. Yeah, 100%. And then I think to take that even a step for further, what I think really separates you as an agent from a lot of the other agents that I've worked with, there's a long list of things. But just for starters, having that level of experience in the market and then being loud about it on social media, there's a lot of people that are afraid to be loud and talk about things. I mean, that's how I found you was on Bigger Pockets and you were mm -hmm. just giving out free value to people, right? And what did that, that created a long lasting uh, business relationship that we have now and a friendship. But man, I mean, 
it's like two ends of the spectrum. Either people are, are out there not giving free value or there's people that have never done a deal trying to, to give people advice. Yeah. And there's not a whole lot of in between there. Yeah. So well, you, you've probably seen a lot of times on on some of the forums that we're both on all the time. I'll see newer wholesalers that will go on there and they'll give very vague information about like, I have a deal in this town. DM me. And to me, that drives me nuts because like if you're an experienced investor and you've already got the property under contract, then give us everything. What are you hiding? For? I mean, nobody can, you know, nobody can steal that from you if you have a good contract. Um, yep. If you want to sell it, like, don't, don't make me beg you for it, you know? Yeah. So I, I, uh, I just think that like being open and giving everything out regardless, it, it's, it's never hurt me. And so I, I, and like I said before, like, I don't look at myself as smarter than the average person. And real estate has been so good to me that like, I want everybody else to, to have the same experience that I have. It's anybody can do this. Literally anybody can do it. Yeah. What's some advice for people that are thinking about going like the investor agent route or like the retail agent route? Why did you go the, I mean, obviously you had some rental properties and you were already an investor. I'm sure that played a role. What are some downfalls and, and also upside uh, of each? We have a small team uh, of agents here and, and we, we don't just work with investors, but we only market to investors. That's how we present ourselves is just working with investors. And so one of the downsides is that we've lost a lot of opportunities to do transactions for for people that we knew that thought we we only had interest in working with investors. And so that's a small downside. And to me, that's not that big of a deal. The, the upside is, is much better, but that's one for sure. You know, you read a lot of like business books and those motivational books, and they'll talk a lot about like going deep in one area and, and really having that specialty. And so we've been we've been really fortunate that taking that angle that we just work with investors has really treated us well because I found that when a lead comes to us. It's not like a lead that some other agent gets off of Zillow where it's just they're randomly clicking a button and they might be interested in buying a property. When people come to us, they've already done their research and they already know that they want to invest and they're coming to us because they know that that's all that we do. And so our conversion rate is significantly higher than most agents, not because we have a higher volume of leads, but because the vol the leads that we get, they've already vetted themselves. So that's been great. And and the reason that we picked this path is the experience that I had. And honestly, as we started that property management company and had some investors that we were managing for, it really just happened organically. We we had, I wasn't a licensed agent at the time, but I felt like I knew our market pretty well, having done a few deals and, and you know, managing some properties. But we had, we were referring some of those deals to friends because we had uh, we had clients that had three or four properties that were saying, I want to do a 1031 exchange or I want to buy another property. And so we'd refer them out to agents that we knew. And after that happened, I don't know, 15 times or something like that, I just thought this is ridiculous to to not take advantage of what's just dropping in our lap. And so that's the angle that we took from the start was just working with investors because that that was the opportunity and the experience that we had. And it's it's worked out really well for us. Love it. So for the um, maybe inexperienced realtors out there or people that have gotten started in the last year and a half, you know, there's a we're we're pretty much at a record low uh, number of listings and a record high number of realtors. So it's pretty tough out there. Trans transaction volume hasn't been lower in a, in a very long time. What's some advice you could give to an agent that's getting started on how to differentiate yourself? Well, the fact of the matter is that going out and getting those deals, like they're, they're not going to come to you sitting down at your desk being a keyboard warrior. You got to go out and network and talk to people and tell them what you're doing. You, you, you have to let people know what you're doing. That's one. And two, the other thing is you really, a lot of people, especially newer investors, um, they feel like real estate agents are a commodity. And so you see a lot of newer newer investors who say, you know, they'll just say, bring me the deal. I'll work with another, whatever agent brings me the deal. And I, I, I mean, I get that. You, you've done deals where agents have, have brought you deals before. Um, and we have a really good relationship. I, I'm totally fine with that. But if that's the only angle that you're taking, you're going to miss a ton of opportunity because working with somebody that, that's pretty well, you know, plugged into the community like our team is, we have, a, we have a long buyers list just like you. And if we have a good deal, I'm not going to pick up the phone and call some stranger who told me to bring him a deal. I'm going to call Ryan Weimer because I've done 45 deals with him and I know he's going to close it and he's going to come back to me next time. And so if you're a new investor and, and you want an agent to bring you a deal, you're probably going to struggle a lot. It's really going out and, and partnering. I, I always tell people that I don't, I don't work for my clients. I'm, I don't work for them. We're business partners. We work together. And if you win, 
then I win. If I win, you win. I'm not going to make money off of a deal that you lose money. It has to be a win-win for everybody. And we're business partners. I don't work for you. You don't work for me. We're working together towards the same goal. And if you're treating me like I'm your employee and I'm supposed to deliver something to your lap and convince you that it's great, I'll just take it to one of my other buyers that already knows that I'm going to bring them a good deal. Yeah. No, I, I, we see the same thing on the wholesaling side where flippers will come to us and say, you know, what's the best price you can give me? And it's like, man, I don't know how to tell you this other than I'll just tell it to you straight that we've got a cash buyers list of over a thousand people. So mm -hmm. like, if you don't buy it, it's no skin off my back. So, yeah. um, at the same time, I really, there's a fine line. Like you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to piss somebody off so that they don't want to work with you again, but you do have to set the right expectations up front because a lot of people just, I, I think a lot of it just comes from a, a sense of cluelessness. Like people don't actually understand how much time, effort and work it takes to get a good deal truthfully on market or off market right it's it's the same it's the same thing for every for every one good deal we do we probably look at 100 right yeah you know one of my favorite stories it, it's it's a Ryan Weimer story but we've been working together for a few years when you you had your day job and you were flying all over the world and we had done a couple deals together and we were managing some properties for you and and they were MLS deals and you were starting this thing that you're doing now and it's funny I remember the reason I brought up that you're flying over the world is because I remember several times where you would land and send me a photo of a stack this this tall <laughs> of handwritten letters that you had written on like a 13 hour flight. Everybody yeah. else is taking a nap or watching movies and or looking at me crazy like I was crazy. Maybe. Like what is this guy doing? <laughs> Seriously, I yeah. had some of that. <laughs> maybe, but but to me, like it's just one of those things where you you didn't end up doing what you're doing. Because you did a couple of good deals and thought like, oh, this is my thing and quit your job and jump in and then try to figure things out or struggle. Like people don't realize the amount of effort and work that goes into building something worth having. Um, I mean, I, I know you've come across a million wholesalers and I've come across a million, you know, wannabe investors and or wholesalers that they will go really hard for a month and then decide it doesn't work. And you were grinding for three years. I mean, all alone. You had no staff, no help, and you were doing this all by yourself remotely. And, you know, on occasion, like I would go out and meet with a seller for you if you needed or take some pictures or property or something like that. But you you were probably putting in 40 hours plus a week doing this on top of a full-time job for months and months and months before anything happened. And people don't realize that, like, that's what it takes. Uh, you know, there's an old saying, like, if you do what everybody else does, you get what everybody else gets. And it, it's true. I mean... If you want something, if you want something extraordinary, it's going to take extraordinary effort. Yeah, I, I love that you said that because I think there is so much power in that in having that W two job. There is, and I think especially in you know the podcast and stuff that stuff that I listen to, financial freedom, FI, fire, all this stuff. It's a lot of times a W two job can just gets condemned, but mm -hmm. it gives you. It gives you that security where you're getting a paycheck every two weeks and you have no risk. You have no risk to go start a side hustle, to start sending letters, to start investing in marketing or starting whatever. The problem is most people, when they go home, they don't start then working at, on their side hustle. They just go turn on Netflix. Yeah. And, and so your story, much like mine, like we both double dipped for multiple years with that W2 job, right? Building up the nest egg. and gaining knowledge, gaining experience so that we didn't really rip the bandaid off until we were like really financially secure from all those years of, of double dipping. And I wonder, I just wonder what really holds people back it, in that it, it's always an underlying fear that they'll fail, but still, if they fail, they're no worse off with that W-2 job. And it's a very weird conundrum. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, I going back to kind of some of that sacrifice. Like it, I'm sure that you were in the same boat. But when I I was out of college and and we were fixing up houses and stuff, I had all my buddies from college that would call you know call me and Heather up and they'd be like, oh, we're having a barbecue and, and got a keg and 30 people are coming over and we'd be like, oh, we're putting a roof on this property this week. We can't do that. And after you know after a while of them asking, they just stopped asking and and they were like, you guys are boring. You're not any fun. And now those same people like. They call me up and they're like, hey, how'd you do that? And it was really just because I was sacrificing and not not going out and, and 
taking the you know the quick easy fun route all the time yeah Uh, and now we get to have lots of fun yeah it's that delayed gratification right how long can you put off short-term satisfaction for long-term gain and so one of the things i wanted to chat with you about on this topic is both of us have a, a pretty aligned i guess why in that we love travel and that's one of the reasons why financial freedom is so important to us why is travel so important to you and your family? We just love getting out and experiencing other people and cultures and history. It, it, to me, it's just so fascinating. So when when I was growing up, um, we, we never had to worry about where our next meal was coming from, but we didn't have anything extra. And one of the stories that I tell is, I, I think it's like fifth grade when they do American history. And I remember talking, learning about Ellis Island and seeing Statue of Liberty. And I remember having the thought, that the Statue of Liberty might as well have been on Mars. Like that was never something I was going to see or touch or experience. Um, And it's in America. I mean, it's in the country that I grew up in, but like that, it might as well have been in another galaxy. And, you know, we travel a lot now and eventually like I I got, I think I was 27 or 28 years old. We we did like a week in New York and I went and saw the Statue of Liberty and something kind of clicked for me that I was like, this is something I never thought I would do in my life. Like experience, seeing the Statue of Liberty or going to, you know, going to Yankee Stadium or something like that. And it just, it kind of made the world a little bit smaller for me. And and that was one of the things that Heather, my wife and I connected on too, is we both wanted to get out and see the world. And so that really became our why from the start. I mean, obviously we, we have family and kids that we we bring into all that, but like getting out and experiencing the world, that was our number one goal always from the start. And so in order to align ourselves with being able to do that and, you know, not really making any money, like we, we didn't take out student loans when we were in college. We worked all the way through college and paid our own way through. It, it took me seven years to get through school. I don't know if I've ever told you that, but I, it took me wow. seven years to get through college because I didn't want to take a loan out. So some, some semesters I would take five credits, but I just kept going here and there to get it done so that I wouldn't have to take out a loan. Um, we don't do car payments, none of that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I I still drive a beater. It's just not important to me. What's important to me is rather than pulling up to a, you know, a rental in a Tesla, I, I would rather fly across the world and, you know, spend a month with my family checking stuff out. That's way more important to me. So we, we've, we've created a lifestyle, not because we have these rentals, but I mean, from the start, like we weren't doing the things that a lot of people do. We weren't borrowing money for things that we didn't need. And that created a foundation for us where we were able to do some, some other stuff that we never thought we'd be able to do. Do you think people that uh, either have never, there's there's quite a few people that have never traveled outside the US. Do you think that that's just a, and I'm not, I'm curious your topic on, or your, uh, I'm curious your thoughts on this. Do people do it out of a lack of resources, like they just can't afford it? Or do people do it because they they aren't aware of the value that it brings, or it's just a, such a foreign concept that they don't even they don't even know what they don't know. I think a lot of people don't know what they don't know, and I mean that's still true for me. Like I'm terrible with geography. I, I like, and so I always <laughs> joke around that like in order to know where a place is, I just have to go there. So once I've been there, I'll yeah. look on the map and be like, oh, that's that's where we are. <laughs> but I think a lot of people just don't realize how big the world is and how small it is all at the same time. I, I guess to 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 put it in a different way, like a lot of people have the impression that like Americans are hated all over the world. Nobody wants Americans coming there because we're all stuck up and, and bold and overbearing and that sort of thing. I've honestly found it to be exactly the opposite. I've found everywhere that we've gone that that not that people, you know, are flying American flags or anything like that, but they're incredibly welcoming and and a lot of the real people that I meet in other countries, they're they really admire the United States. And I think I think some people don't travel because they think that they're not welcome as Americans. It's funny. We went to Fiji a couple of years ago and I had read that Fijians like loved Americans and that, that they were very welcoming. And, and I didn't think much about it, but we, we went to this small little village and we we're walking around and on a couple of different occasions, people came out of their homes and picked our children up and walked them back. Didn't even look at me or Heather or, or even acknowledge we were there, picked our children up and walked back into their house and were like, playing around with their hair and introducing them to their families. And we kind of followed in and, and we're like, Oh, Hey, Hey, we're here too. And they just kind of ignored us. And just like, we're playing with the kids and having a great time. And then they'd come over and talk to us and acknowledge us and like, Oh, thank you for letting us play with your children. They, they just were so warm and welcoming and kind having those experiences with other cultures and meeting people who are different than you, but, but also connecting with them on a human level. It's such a cool thing. 
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. That hasn't been my experience at all, that, that Americans are condemned or hated worldwide. Um, I think a lot of that is news media uh, related. Most places that I've been are actually quite happy to see Americans because it means they're going to be spending money. And that's mm-hmm. what keeps it, it adds to their livelihood and their families. And And you're so right. There is a lot of cultures around the world. There's a Hollywood-esque feel to Americans. Like that's kind of what the, the rest, a lot of the maybe second or third world countries associate America with Hollywood and with movies and, and famous people and California and, and all this stuff. And they are beyond grateful to see you. So mm-hmm. you have to, you also have to have the personality to want to like go throw yourself into a new culture and environment um, because you know that you're going to learn some cool things or experience some new things. And I think a lot of people just, they don't, they want to stay comfortable in their, in their professional life and their home life. And, you know, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I mean, I know a lot of people that once a year they go to the same resort in Cabo San Lucas that they go to yeah. every year and they try <laughs> to get the same room. And I mean, if that's your thing, that's, I'm not, that's totally fine. It's just, we, we can bash fine. on those people. It's okay. We can do that. We can do that <laughs> but on, on a very surface level. Like I, I want to eat like all the donuts and all the weird meats in everywhere in the world. Love it. Absolutely. So you're investing, you're investing journey. Now, when you get to level, you know, there's different levels of financial freedom. And once you've gotten to a certain level and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but at this point you don't really need the money. Why are you working towards a certain goal or what is the what is the why behind what you're doing now and um, what you're trying to achieve? Well, part of it now is we we have employees that work for us. And so we want to we want to build up more so that we can do more for our employees, too. You know, we want to treat them really well. And the better that we're doing and our business is doing, the better we can pay them, the better benefits we can offer. So that's a big driver for us um, as well. Um, But beyond that, you know, there there's the more stuff that I do and the more experience I get, the more value I can offer to other people. It's so rewarding for me to to meet somebody who's doing their first deal and they trust our team enough to walk them through that and then see them like start building those blocks and, and changing their lives. And not at all to say that like what we're doing had you were going to make it whether you met me or not, like you were going to do really cool things. But us working together and seeing you go from your day job to doing this now, like that's been super rewarding for me. I'm not taking credit for your work, but just like being a part of that and, and being a part of your first couple of deals, like that was huge for me. Like that, that's super rewarding. And we've had several clients that have quit their jobs and become full-time real estate professionals in some way. And that's been super rewarding too. And so just helping other people come along those steps and changing their lives and letting I love helping people realize that this life that they didn't think was possible for them truly is possible. It's the coolest thing. Yeah. When somebody changes their brain chemistry forever and there's no going back, that's that's something that I really admire about you is is you did that for me. And oh, thanks. it that's is. Awesome. And then, it, well, what's cool about it is just the web of impact, right? Because it's not just me that it's affecting it's now everybody that i'm talking to and everybody that i'm interviewing and everybody that i'm coaching and then everybody that you're talking to and interviewing and coaching and it's just like it is you know it impact is just not something that money can accurately uh, depict it's like it's just this it feels good to do good and it Mm -hmm. feels good when you can have a meaningful impact in other people's lives and entrepreneurship is really the only way that you can actually do that running your own business, becoming a realtor, becoming an investor, like you can actually have control over what you spend time on, who you spend time with, what you spend money on. And it, it changes people's lives. It's not just the surface level. Well, here's some information, like go and run with it. Um, it's not a hollow type of uh, W2 corporate job, dead end thing. It is life changing and multiple generations, like you're changing people's family tree forever and what they're going to do forever. And it's just, I'm glad you brought that up because that is, that is the coolest. That gives me a ton of energy. Oh, for sure. It, it's, it's the best. I mean, if I never got another commission check, that would be okay. Just knowing that like people have been able to think differently and, and do bigger things with their lives. I, to me, that's, it, it's the coolest thing. That's what gets me going for sure. So for somebody maybe then 
uh, that's listening to this. That's like, gosh, Cor- Corby and Ryan are talking about this. Like, it's just the easiest thing in the world. What is what's an action step that somebody can take today to get to just maybe it's just step A towards financial freedom? I would say reach out to somebody that's in your market doing what you're doing. And like I said earlier, it, maybe it's an uncomfortable ask for you, but ask them to, to meet you for coffee or to, to let you buy them lunch. And I guarantee you, they're going to say yes. They might not meet you tomorrow. It might, you know, it might take a while to get on their calendar, but like ask somebody that, that you think is uncomfortably doing amazing things in your market and ask if you can just meet with them and ask them questions and they, they will meet with you. And I found in, in many cases that like those people will connect you with other people doing things and your network will start to grow. And just getting out and doing things, you can read all the books, you can listen to all the podcasts, and none of that matters at all if you don't take action. I mean, it's completely meaningless. And so I meet a lot of people that they know a ton about this world, but they, they're not taking any action. And they haven't taken any action. And it's meaningless. So get out there and, and meet somebody who's doing what you want to do. I, I would say that's the thing. DM somebody that you don't know, that you think is doing cool stuff in your market, and get together with them. Love that. Absolutely true. Uh, I, I'm going to selfishly ask. So I'm a I'm a new dad, and uh, you've got three small boys, not so small anymore, growing every day. And uh, I'm curious how you balance, you know, school curriculum with entrepreneurship and financial freedom, and how those often clash. Uh, and then, of course, college down the line and everything. Is it? Can you talk about how you? how you handle that and those discussions in your home. Honestly, my wife really is better at better at this than me. There's a reason why she taught a lot longer than me. She's an amazing teacher and and I wasn't the greatest teacher, but we involve our kids in a lot of what we do. And working with investors, we do a lot of remote deals. A lot of our clients are in California. We have we have clients in Europe, all over the place. Uh, we have a couple of clients that are in Asia. And so we do a lot of remote deals and remote rehabs for them and that sort of thing. So our kids come along when we're walking through properties and I'll talk to them about what we're going to do in the property, how much we think it's worth and and the type of work that we're doing on occasion, if it's one of our own, like they'll come over and, and swing a hammer. Sometimes they're a couple of the younger ones are the, the two younger aren't quite there yet, but, and we also, honestly, we don't talk specifics with them about money, but we talk about concepts all the time. And so we sit down at the dinner table every night and, um, there's a topic that we discuss with them every single night and it changes. Uh, and if we don't have something in mind that happened that day, we actually have a deck of cards, um, that we pull a random one out and it has a family discussion topic on it. And it's always something about positive mindset and self-sufficiency. And, and I guess last but not least, like my wife, she's a big, uh, a big fan of the book grit. Have you read grit? Angela Duckworth. I have not, no. So she's a big fan of that. And it, it talks a lot about, I mean, the, the simple thing about being able to pick yourself up when you get knocked down and, and come back stronger and learn from that. And so we, we talk with our kids a lot about having grit and um, dealing with problems on their own, solving problems on their own. And we, by and large, like we don't step in and solve their problems for them. We try to give them the tools to go back and deal with it themselves. And, and, they're still little. I mean, there's struggles with that and it, it doesn't always go over well. But um, I found that relative to a lot of the people that I know, our kids generally have pretty good grit and are emotionally strong, which is huge. I love that. Not only providing like a a planned safe space for them to be vulnerable and to talk about some kind of topic, whatever it is every day, but mm-hmm. then by uh, building up their independence and and the grit that goes along with it, and encouraging them to fail and learn from that. You're what you're doing is you're building up their confidence, mm-hmm. and so then they can go make decisions freely, and then not be completely crushed by the outcome if it doesn't work out. Like, oh, you know, I've this is grit. This is a time to use grit, and yeah, and you're triggering that subconscious mind. So I love that. That's that's something that I think the audience can take away of to do something really intentional like that with their family uh, every night. Well, it's cool because we we don't we don't necessarily have small scale conversations like we it's funny. A couple months ago, I'd forgotten we had this conversation, but my 11 year old something came up on on the news or that we were talking about that had to do with inflation. 
And we had had a conversation about inflation like a year ago when it really started picking up here. And, and I, it had slipped my mind. And I said, oh, do you, do you know about inflation? Do you understand? Because he'd asked me some question about this news story. And he said, yeah. And he, he gave the most eloquent definition of inflation and was able to like relate it to something very personal, like for an 11 year old, he had, he has as good of a grasp of the concept as I do. And so, I mean, it, to me, it's, it's huge to not talk down to your kids or think that they're not going to understand the concept. I think, I think having those big concept conversations with them and giving them the grace to, to assume that they're going to be able to pick up on it is huge too. They'll, they'll rise to the occasion. Oh, I love it. So moving forward, what does, what does real freedom look like for Corby and for the goat family? Oh, well, we, we want to travel more and more and more. Um, we've been really lucky. Um, the last few years we've been able to travel a lot, but one of our goals is to be able to, um, do a semester abroad for our kids somewhere. And so that's sort of on the horizon for us. We've been talking more and more about that. Um, but building up our business so that it, it it's running efficiently, whether we're here or not is huge for us. And we have a really good staff right now. We have some really good people in place and it, it's getting better and better all the time. And so, um, just, being in that leadership position where the day to day is run by by our people and they feel appreciated and they're given all the tools and, and education that they need to to be good at their job and they're they're given the freedom to excel in areas that that they can excel in and having support from us um, so that doing those things and providing them with all those opportunities it it provides us with freedom so that's where I see our future going is is building up more stability and an opportunity for the people that work for our business so that it, it can grow on its own. Love that. Absolutely love that. So my last question for you is about the Boise market. What do you say to people that say, hey, uh, gosh, you could buy a house in Boise for 75 grand or 100 grand in 2011, and now median price is just shy of 600K. Uh, there's there's no room left to run. Boise is not a, a good place to buy anymore. It it's it's gone up too much. The the heydays are over. Well, what I do in that situation a lot of times is I go back and give them the numbers on that first house that I bought, and I'll I'll go through a lot of the personal deals that I bought over the years, and honestly, like in relative terms, the numbers are the same as what you see today, and they're not great. Um, so like that, the first house that I bought, the example that I gave, I paid $105,000 for it. And the first, the first lease that I had, I think I rented it for $675. And so I, I might've been cash flowing 20 bucks a month on that property. Maybe it wasn't a great deal. And that house has bought me at least five other properties just by shifting equity around it. Cash flows now probably 1500 bucks a month. And I still have a loan on it. It's just time. The, there's no secret to real estate. People are always, you know, the big thing right now with the interest rates where they are is sub two and owner carry. And those aren't, those aren't good or bad things, but that shouldn't change whether you do or, or do not act. It, it's, it's just a matter of time. If you invest in, in, with intention and you are mitigating your risks as best you can, you, you will be fine over time. So that, that first house that, uh, that rented for 675 bucks, I think, we actually have as an Airbnb now, and it it, it brings in twenty eight hundred, three thousand bucks a month, something like that. And so that rent has gone up five times. So I mean, in relative terms, if you could have bought a house for eighty thousand dollars in two thousand seven, if you multiply that five times, that's four hundred thousand dollars. That same house, really, right now, is probably a four hundred thousand dollar house. The 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 ratios are the same. Yeah, it's the time that makes the difference. Do you expect the migration patterns to continue to Boise? For sure. And I mean, even taking property values and demand out of the equation, people are not going to stop moving here. It's it's a great place. I mean, everyone that lives and invests here, they're here for a reason. And I, I kind of make a joke that, you know, we have a lot of clients in California and people always talk about Californians. Yeah. But <laughs> I can't tell you how many times we've had people call us up that want to invest in our market. They live in California and we'll do one or two deals for them remotely. They don't even come here. And then I'll get a random call. They want to come tour around and see the properties that they bought. And they'll come here for a weekend. I'll show them around a little bit. And then two months later, they'll get another call and they're like, we're moving. Like, can you help us find a house? That happens all the time. 
And these are people yeah. who have no intentions of leaving. It's it's just a great place. And I mean, you you know you know that from having spent a ton of time here. Boise is a very unique place in how clean it is, how safe it is, and whether people want to admit it or not. In relative terms, the cost of living here is still pretty reasonable. Yeah. Oh, totally. When I go back, and you can still get like six dollar, seven dollar beers some places. You know, it's a uh, it's still relatively affordable compared to the yeah. entire West Coast. Yeah. So, oh, for sure. Yeah. Especially awesome. if you're comparing it to any of the big cities on the coast. Perfect. So Corby, for people that are looking to to work with you or maybe have an interest to uh, buy an investment property in Boise, how can they reach out to you? We're on social media. Everything is at Boise Turnkey, but you can just go to our website and you can reach out to me or any anybody else on our team directly. It's just www.boiseturnkey.com. Awesome. Well, thanks a bunch, Corby. It was great having you. Anything you want to leave the listeners with? I I, I just want to tell people that Get out there and take some action. Anybody can be successful in real estate if you are patient. It's just a, a matter of being consistent and, and patient. You will do just fine. Don't be afraid. Lovely. Well, thank you so much, Corby. Have yeah, a great thanks one. Thanks for having me. I yeah. appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you.